and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. Burns. Today I'm revisiting an interview which I originally recorded nearly four years ago. Professor Joan Roughgarden is no ordinary biologist and no ordinary trans woman either, though there are quite a few high academic achievers within the worldwide community of gender variant, transgender and transsexual people. Joan is perhaps best known for her 2004 book Evolution's Rainbow, an academic work written in a language accessible to the public. In it, she challenges Darwin's theory of sexual selection. Her subsequent book, Evolution and Christian Faith, Reflections of an Evolutionary Biologist, published in 2006, showed that her willingness to take on controversial subjects was, if anything, stronger and more confident, despite the inevitable way in which her critics responded to the first. Joan transitioned from man to woman in 1998 at the age of 52. At that time, she had already been teaching at Stanford University for over a quarter of a century and had three books and over a hundred academic articles and papers to her name. She owed her ability to continue working through her gender change to no lesser figure than Condoleezza Rice, former US Secretary of State and once, arguably, one of the most powerful women in the world. I'd arranged to interview Joan while she was in Britain for a conference in 2007. She readily agreed, and I began by asking her about her family and social background. Joan, it's it's lovely to meet you, and it's um, wonderful that you've been able to get over to the the UK uh, right now. I was wondering if I could ask you first... A little bit about yourself, because many people will know your name. Lots of people maybe don't, don't, however. So if you can explain to me a little bit about your, your family history first. And certainly, it's uh, lovely to meet you as well. And thank you so much uh, for getting in touch. And thank you so much for, for all the communication in the past years. So uh, it's there's been a sense of solidarity, I think, between the transgender people in the U.S. and and here in the U.K. and in many, and we admire the leadership uh, and the and the progress that you've been able to make legislatively, which uh, just isn't even on the horizon in the U.S. In, in part, of course, because we're so big and it would have to be done state by state. But but also um, just the vision of organization. Uh, that you have in the UK is uh, a source of deep and abiding envy for us in, in the US. I'm going to have to edit this bit out. Of <laughs> but you, you, you live in San Francisco, is that right? Yes, I live in San Francisco. Is that where you were born? Uh, no, I, I was born in New Jersey in, uh, on the East Coast, but I grew up in Indonesia in the Philippine Islands. Uh, my father was a missionary, but not a priest, and he was working for the Episcopal Church uh, as an architect and construction engineer building churches and hospitals and then he was working for the United Nations 
uh, in Indonesia and building houses for personnel there. So I grew up uh, in the tropics, and uh, as, a, as, as a result, ever since I really love hot, humid weather that most people can't stand, you know. But what I, are you doing in Britain? <laughs> shivering. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, even San Francisco is a little cold for me, I must say. Uh, but uh, then I went to university on the East Coast and uh, then moved to California uh, in 1972, and I've been there now for quite a while, so I feel very much like a Californian. And I've always been in the San Francisco area and, and lived in downtown San Francisco now since 1999. But but it wasn't originally biology that you came to. I understand you were an, oce- an oceanographer. Oh no, I was a biological oceanographer. So it's a division of of oceanography. Now I've always been a biologist and. Uh, for about one week, uh, I was actually pre-medicine, but uh, I took one look at the people who were also pre-meds and decided I didn't want them as colleagues. <laughs> and uh, But I stayed in biology. It's hard to explain why. It did. I, I was basically encouraged uh, when I was a first-year student uh, and felt that uh, because of the encouragement from the instructor at that time, a professor named Wolf Vishniak, uh, who was a microbiologist, uh, that I, I could make a career there. It just seemed like a place where I had something to offer. Um, and then as it turned out, I went into the ecology evolution area of biology because it's the most theoretical area of biology. The problem with biology as, as a student is that so much of the material just requires memorization and, and not thinking. But ecology and evolution are the most conceptual and theoretical parts of biology, the most philosophical, if you will. And that's what's always attracted me. And I was able to uh, take a lot of mathematics when I was in university. And, and yet, even though I'm known primarily as a mathematical or theoretical uh, ecologist and evolutionist on the aptitude tests. My verbal aptitude always turns out to be higher than my mathematical aptitude. And what it's amounted to is that I can explain equations in words. And I really have made a living by being able to teach math-phobic students math (laughs) and how to teach biology majors um, You'll never never go hungry in that case. (laughs) I I want to come back to this, obviously the philosophical side of of what you do in a moment. But first, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the experience of transitioning as an academic and how you you felt that went, how much support you got from your colleagues. Well, um, this was in uh, 98, and I've been preparing for it for a few years beforehand, it's pretty clear that uh, no one had any experience with someone transitioning. Um, And it pushed the envelope very clearly for uh, uh, my colleagues. I understand this even involved Condoleezza Rice? Yes, I was at Stanford University and, and still am. And Condoleezza Rice was the provost at that time. And I went to her uh, because she was the chief academic officer rather than to start uh, lower down in the uh, administration. 
Because if it was okay with her, then it would be okay down the line. And I didn't want her to be blindsided by this, that she had to be in a position to uh, be the first to absorb and then to control the um, subsequent unfolding of uh, events. And and she was a truly wonderful person. She's extraordinarily intelligent. And I had composed this letter, and I had a little picture of myself as Joan. And uh, so I I waited. So I made an appointment with her, and then I actually waited in a chapel until the time came. And then I went out of the chapel to to her, and I saw her reading the letter. And I could follow her eyes as she went from line to line, and she would nod. And then she, at the very end, I had, I had summarized everything I had done at Stanford, and I asked her if I could remain on the faculty. And so she looked at me and she said, yes, you may remain at Stanford. And uh, Which is a very interesting thing to do because she could have said no. She had had the power to say no. And even though I had tenure at the time, um, this was so extraordinary, I think, that I could have been forced out or given a golden parachute or something of that sort. And then she looked, she was so sweet, she looked at the picture and said, you're a beautiful woman. And I thought that was so sweet of her. And um, and throughout her career um, at, the, at the university, she's always had a very good sensitivity to different peoples and to diversity. And I hang out in very leftist circles, and I must say I'm the only person I know of who says good things about Condoleezza Rice. And But the fact is, that's what I can report. And it makes a lot of difference to know the human being sometimes, doesn't it? Yes. And her own history is, of course, interesting because uh, the reason, in fact, she became a Republican was that the Democrats wouldn't have anything to do with her as a, as a black girl, son of a preacher in uh, the south somewhere, I don't remember, it might have been Alabama. And, uh, and it was at that time, the Republicans uh, were nowhere, and they would sort of take anybody. And they took her, and they've had her ever since. Uh, and if only the Democrats had been able to see um, the potential that she had, because I mean, there's evident brilliance there. And, of course, all my friends, you know, uh, condemn her for being a member of the Bush administration, which I appreciate, but I feel the Bush administration might be a good deal worse if it weren't for her. And we don't have any controlled experiment in which we've seen what Bush would do without Rice there versus what Bush would do with Condoleezza Rice there. And um, I, I have the feeling we're starting to, to toy with areas of controversy that, that, that put your biology controversy into the shade. If I just come on to that now, yeah. then, I mean, you actually described in the early publicity for, for, for your, your first book, Evolution's Rainbow, uh-huh. um, this sort of road to Damascus epiphany moment of, of watching Pride. And, and uh-huh. tell me about that. Well, um, this was about the. Oh, maybe the first year after I'd come out or something like that. Uh, it was about 19... Actually, might even have been the year before my transition. It might have been 1997, something like that. And I was marching in my first gay pride parade in San Francisco, which is a really gargantuan uh, parade, and it's going to be next week. And I remember seeing, uh, being impressed at the size uh, of of it. And... 
a lot of people don't un- don't understand the sense of this. I I concluded that if there's a theory that says there's something wrong with so many people, then maybe it's the theory that's wrong and not the people. And that's because you know I was aware that as a biologist, the the scientific narratives that that you get in the biology curriculum as well as throughout medicine about gender and sexuality variation is always negative and pathologizing. And as a naturalist, you don't. Th- this raised a red flag because if if I were to go study a population of birds and I found that 10% of the birds had a yellow stripe. I wouldn't say, oh, that's a defective gene that they have, which happens to give them yellow instead of brown. It's not as though there's a brown defective gene which is letting the yellow come through or something like that. And it would be my job as a naturalist to know what the social function was of the yellow stripe, you know, or whatever the trait is. That a, a truly deleterious trait is automatically very rare. If there were only one in 10,000 birds or one in uh, 30,000 birds that had a yellow stripe, well, then you might be able to assume there was some something strange. But, but when you're talking about... Uh, Uh, what we would call a phenotype or a trait which is present at around 10% to 1% of the population that is far far too common to be explained by some uh, story of deleteriousness or maladaption maladaptation and that's what was being done about um, gays and trans and so forth And, and until the gay pride parade I didn't viscerally sense how many people were gay and how many people were trans. And I had heard the numbers, you know, that one in ten are gay or one in five, something like that. But I didn't know that many people. I mean, it's not as though 10% of my friends were gay. I had no, nor would I have known. I mean, one coming from the straight world doesn't, one doesn't know how many people really are gender and sexuality variant in one way or another and and the gay pride parade puts everybody out there and then when you see a hundred thousand people then you know that that very well could be 10 percent of the entire san francisco population and then you know that you cannot tell a negative story about this on the basis of science you're doing your science wrong and that was the moment and i knew that if i ever if I could keep my job and and so on, I was going to have to revisit um, the science of gender and sexuality and figure out just what was going on. And that then led eventually to evolution's rainbow. Did you have any misgivings about that, knowing that obviously that that, that's going to draw a lot of criticism, challenging that aspect of Darwin, and that people would personalize that in terms of your own gender history and say that you were were talking from a position of bias and you weren't being objective? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I I try to evade, actually, uh, uh, going directly in contradiction with Darwin on sexual selection so that even in the preface of Evolution's Rainbow I was being equivocal and I was trying to say well Darwin may have been right about the peacock but that's he's not right very often you know and I was trying to take a position which would give give the sexual selectionist some space but kind of locate it as being uh, uh, a, 
unusual or uh, not the general case, but just uh, less common than originally imagined, but nonetheless uh, correctly explained by Darwin. But by the time I got to the chapter in Evolution's Rainbow where I was summarizing the diversity, then I just simply so to speak, put my beer on the table and said, you know, I've got to call it the way it is here. And Darwin's probably wrong on the peacock, too. And and so I knew this would be a more or less untenable position. Uh, certainly politically, it's untenable. Uh, but um, it keeps we keep coming back to the fact, how do you compromise on a contradiction? How, how do you compromise on... Uh, uh, this is a bit like declaring that the world is not flat, isn't it? Yes. So uh, we'll we'll see how it plays out. I mean, it's it's still early, and the the sexual selection advocates are going to have to deal with uh, accounting for the diversity and accounting for the contradictions and accounting for all of the cases in which the sexual selection story is now collapsing and they're welcome to continue um, supposing that they can fix it up but as I've said sometimes before, you've heard it from me first, do you want to throw good money after bad or do you want to rethink this and um, it's their choice Obviously, the, the, the prominence that you've been given because of this work also inevitably projects you as, as, as a more visible person in terms of the whole transgender politics arena in the United States as well. Can you tell me your impression of how that differs from, from say, the UK and, and also how it's progressing? Well, I, I don't know how it differs from the UK, so that's one of the interesting things here is for me to to get more of a sense of the transgender um, environment here in my, my feeling about the the transgender agenda is that um, and, and from the very beginning of course as you point out in order to evade the criticism of sexual selection theory the, the first comeback is that I have an agenda or a trans agenda. And um, so we need to be clear about what that is uh, and also what their agenda is. Because the other side has an agenda too, which they usually won't own up to and they usually won't discuss. And so the, the trans agenda that I have is not political, it's intellectual. And the comparison would be between um, a... a ba- uh, in the U.S., for example, the role of blacks in baseball has not been to change baseball, but simply to uh, prosper within baseball. And I suppose it would be the same for cricket uh, in India and in the West Indies, where the game of cricket hasn't changed, but you have a, a broader group of people playing cricket than uh, in the early colonial days or whatever. But Uh, On the other hand, if we look at music, we see that blacks have actually changed music. They've made the blues, they've made jazz, and in Jamaica, for example, they've made reggae. And I think that the whole LGBT movement so far has not really changed the intellectual landscape very much. A lot of us in in the wider gay community are talking to one another. And And I think that the agenda, therefore, is to influence the 
intellectual landscape from our location, but the broad intellectual, to make statements that, that affect the center, but make them from a marginal location, if you know what I'm saying. And finally, Joan, I'm going to ask you, if you could have had your time again and not been trans, would you, would, would you, would you wish that were, were so? Well, um, it's hard. I mean, I don't think about that. I do know that I value my womanhood in a deeper sense, I think, than, than many women who just take it for granted. <laughs> and uh, not unlike, you know, an immigrant who values their citizenship more than someone born natively. Um, and... It's a hard call because obviously having lived for a while as a man, that gave me access to um, uh, training and uh, to a position that that women would not uh, have been able to access because of the prejudice in the workplace against women. Which is quite a big big prejudice in academia, isn't it? Yes, and uh, so I think that the job now is to use that location for good so that's why I really can't go stealth in good conscience uh, because I'm privileged to have uh, a university position and to know the subject of evolutionary biology and if it is the source of sort of the if, if, it, if it's the intellectual license for discrimination and for pathologizing then it really is my job to do something about that. Uh, so, you know, it's hard. We all have our paths. If, if, if you, it's interesting talking with women generally is that I think that the life paths of women generally are, are not as linear as they are for men, seems to me. And so I don't see mine as my life path is more difficult than, than women who had to escape uh, during the Holocaust or who had to escape in boats from Vietnam during that war it's, and, or who had an abusive husband or who had any number of things. And so, so I have had a, uh, a difficult path and, and put up but not more difficult than other women who have also had difficult paths. <laughs> and I think that's important that we not uh, think of ourselves as uh, uh, in terms which are uh, oh, self-indulgent, I guess you could say. And so I don't know if that answers your question. I, I just accept the way I am. It's a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe it's a bit unfair. I'll tell you what, I'll ask you another question actually mm-hmm. as well. Is If you could change one thing, what do you think it would be? Uh, one thing in the world? Yeah. Well, there, there are a few of them. It's, it's the boiling it down to one, which is the problem. I, I think probably the, the, the single issue that I'd like to uh, change or to solve is to understand the evolution of prejudice and why, why there is prejudice and whether animals also show prejudice, which I think they do. And I think the evolution of traits like uh, the peacock's tail is really the bodily manifestation of uh, zoological prejudice, you might say. 
And prejudice is very interesting because uh, it it's always based on arbitrary characteristics, which are are made to assume uh, a great social significance with implications for access to resources. And in every society, you have have uh, groupings forming around arbitrary characteristics which are used for prejudice, you know. Uh, and I think that's the flip side of cooperation and of teamwork is that while there's a lot of cooperation that goes on within the team, then there are also people excluded from the team. And it's that line to 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 affect the exclusion is where the prejudice is lodged and it's the mechanism for uh, the exclusion. So you can focus on on the existence of the cooperation, but you can also focus on, on the exclusion. And I think that's where prejudice comes from. And I don't know if I would like to... I don't think it would be realistic to say we, we can't have prejudice, and so I wouldn't say wish that there were no prejudice. But I wish we could understand where prejudice comes from. And it's not just socially constructed. It's biologically motivated, I think, and then realized through social construction. And uh, if we understood that better, I think we would also have uh, a lot less violence and, and, uh, and we'd understand war better. On which note, shall we go and have a cup of tea? (laughs) Joan, thank you very much. You've been listening to an archive interview of mine with evolutionary biologist Joan Roughgarten, originally recorded at the University of East Anglia in Norwich in the summer of 2007. My apologies, by the way, for the poor sound quality. Anyway, that as usual brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you'd like to hear more, then the place to go is our website, podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Take a look at the subscription options there so you never miss subsequent shows. Join us again soon for another programme on a topic relating to equality and diversity. For now, though, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. <laughs>